0: All three of the readings this morning are worth preaching about. Here are some of the questions that they raise. The first one is, uh, does human practical wisdom, uh, the distillation of human experience, uh, have any importance for religious people? Does it have spiritual significance of any kind? Is ordinary Uh, wisdom, something that is valuable, and in the book of Proverbs, which we're going to begin to read for a while now, for at least two or three weeks more, uh, it might have something to say to us about that. What is the relationship between faith and works? And more to the point, how do we deal with people in the community setting and intentional communities in our own everyday life with people who are not like ourselves? Not just people who are economically deprived, but people who are different from us in some way. How do we deal with that awkwardness and the demands of the gospel for radical inclusion? And finally, what sense are we to make from the healing stories of Jesus, and most particularly to ask the question, did Jesus in his own life and ministry go through a process of development and understanding with regard to his mission and with regard to how he understood himself and his role in the divine economy. The book of Proverbs, I don't get to preach about Proverbs much, Yeah, I have to say this. When I was a kid, I went over to one of my friends' houses for dinner. And we were sitting at the dinner table, and the father, who was a bit in his cups, sat at the table and read, from the book of Proverbs, the poem, the extended poem on what a good wife is. And I remember, of course, that uh, I was a little embarrassed. I expect that that, uh, he had a wife. In fact, I knew he did that was long-suffering. And maybe he wished to uh, sort of soften, pour oil on the waves, you know? Who knows? The ever-agitated but healthful waters of matrimony. (laughs) Since I've been a pastor, I've actually learned from many people in their own personal commentary to me that they have been either in their own families or other places where they have witnessed a similar scene. So it is not unique. Proverbs uh, is the oldest piece of wisdom literature in the Hebrew Bible. And you know, a little without going too far down the road here with this, There is a whole section of writing in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Bible, that we call wisdom literature, that sources in the ancient Near East are not specifically religious, and they don't flow necessarily out of the people of the covenant or the community of the covenant, but for some reason, the compilers of the canon, which is the technical term we use for the authorized books of the Old Testament, believed, for some reason, that the wisdom literature was important and that they should include it. You know, the Psalms are wisdom literature. The book of Proverbs is wisdom literature. The wisdom of Solomon, you know, all of those. The apocryphal literature, which Episcopalians read, is part of the wisdom literature. Although Episcopalians, unlike Roman Catholics and the Eastern Orthodox, say we read the Apocrypha for edification but not for doctrine. That's a story, isn't it? But not for today. So Proverbs is about practical ethics. And the question that I asked at the beginning is, does this kind of stuff have any application to our religious life, our spiritual life, the way in which we understand uh, living in a more godly fashion? Or is it just ordinary human stuff? And is there a difference? Well, you hear me say to you all the time in sermons that I believe that the spiritual life is the whole of life, body, soul, mind, spirit, given to God in love. And that means that the practical ethics and the practical wisdom that you have learned in your life or that you have been the recipient of from somebody who has been generous in the best way to commend the practical wisdom that they have is something that helps you in maturing your spirit, in allowing you to begin to see that there is a connection between who we are made in God's image and how we can live in a more healthy way in relationship. And perhaps the book of Proverbs has something to do with it. I expect, by the way, in historical terms, that one of the reasons Proverbs was included is that it is a, the authorship is attributed to King Solomon. So these are technically titled, as you read in the thing, the Proverbs of Solomon, son of David. So in some way, uh, that vests these writings with some power and authority. And yet, you know, it's a lot of reason and common sense in the book of Proverbs. And there is other wisdom literature that contains similar kinds of things. So I'm making a commercial message for the importance of practical ethics, the pursuit of excellence, you know? The word that we use for uh, virtue in English comes from a Greek word, erete, which means excellence. So to live a morally sound life, to live a life that is ethically sound, involves in some way, in practical wisdom terms, the pursuit of excellence in that way. Now, those who compiled Proverbs and people in the ancient Near East in their thought world would have, been, would have advanced two views, and you see it in Proverbs. First is, here's what the sensible person will do. And the other thing is, if you don't do this, you reap the consequences. Not using practical ethics and practical wisdom in your life produces things that are not always positive. I would suggest to you that in the book of Proverbs, without mixing up things too much, this is about the karmic forces at work in the cosmos. You reap what you sow. That's what Jesus says in the Gospels. So if you live a life where, you know, there's some people who believe that uh, the idea of pursuing practical wisdom or practical ethics uh, is not necessarily the best thing in the world, or that you might need to improve the way in which you think, improve the way in which you relate. You know, one person said to me, that kind of thinking is like decorating your house while it's on fire. Right. And believe me, there's some people who think that's a good plan, you know. So Proverbs sets us up for the major theme that's in all of the readings in some form. The question, too, that I said, how do we treat people different from ourselves, most particularly those on the margins? So it concludes with a proverb about being caring about the poor and that it's important for us to be concerned about that in more ways than one. You know, a great part of being concerned about this, the generous impulse, isn't merely the lady-bountiful form of Christian charity. It has to do with taking all God's people seriously. And I'll tell you something. In my ministry, I've discovered that there are some people who are up against it, and not always because it's their own fault. Things happen to people. So, Proverbs says you need to be concerned about that, and communities get judged by how well they look after those on the margins. The Epistle to James, again, we're going to be reading it for a while, and it is a general letter. Uh, It is attributed to James, one of the apostles, it uh, is Jewish Christian in its origins. It is an exhortation about practical ethics, but it also has some things to do about with pastoral realities on the ground in a variety of Christian communities in the ancient Near East. We're not absolutely clear about the origin of this letter, where it came from, but we do know that it has application to many of the Christian communities that were in existence at the time of its writing. So it's speaking about some circumstances that were were happening. And one of them was that we find in a number of Christian communities, clearly these days we would say this is not uh, merely uh, confined to Christian communities, but people are showing too much deference to the prosperous, the well-connected, the people who appear to uh, be able to uh, give us uh, advantages that we would seek and to be less concerned about those who come and perhaps have none of those things. And so they get pushed to the side. They, don't, they get the cheap seats, as my grandfather would say. And the author is saying, you know what, we need to be concerned about this and not just about people who are well-heeled, dressed well, look prosperous, are connected, can benefit you, and so on or you treat them well because you're afraid they might harm you. And therefore, it's a better thing to be on their good side than on their bad side. Cultivating power and prestige is not a unique occurrence back in the ancient Near East. It occurs continuously in our culture, doesn't it? And all of us, in one form or another, have been part of that. But at the same time, I said, let's not just focus on this or focus on the poor, but what about the real issues of how uncomfortable it is for us to be around people different than we are? Whose life, we would say these days, lifestyles are different, who come from different racial backgrounds, who come from different socioeconomic backgrounds, not just merely people who are abjectly poor and clearly are people who need immediate attention but people who are in some ways deprived or disadvantaged compared to you. And there are all different levels of this. And so how do you deal with your discomfort? How do you deal with being distracted or anxious or busy and just not paying attention to people that are different than you are? You know, part of the demands of the gospel are to take other people seriously. This doesn't mean you have to get caught up in their drama. It doesn't mean, as my grandfather would have said, you have to eat out of the same plate with them, right? But it does mean, in some way, you need to take people seriously. And you need to see that all of us are made in God's image. Archbishop Desmond Tutu, in one of the finest talks I ever heard given on human dignity in the community center in Marin City, right next to Sausalito, spoke about the fact that if in our tradition, in my tradition, he said as an Anglican Christian, sitting in a, in a public forum, genuflect before the real presence of Christ in the blessed sacrament or bow deeply, we really ought to genuflect or bow deeply to one another, made in God's image. And I hope I leave you today with that view, he said, that this is how we all ought to see one another, made in God's image and vested with the same presence of God that produces that pious act in the liturgy. And so the author of the Epistle of James is saying something about that kind of transformation. Now he says something else that I'll read to you because it's fairly well known and you've heard it, I'm sure, many times read uh, in church. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith but do not have works? Can faith save you? If a brother or sister is naked and lacks daily food and one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and eat your fill, and yet you do not supply their bodily needs, What is the good of that? So faith by itself, if it has no works, is dead. Many of you know, of course, that Martin Luther did not like this passage. In fact, if he were king for a day, he would have thrown the whole epistle of James out of the New Testament canon. And the reason for that is that he was the big promoter of salvation by faith through grace. There is nothing that you can do for yourself to save you. It is only by God's gracious act and your faith in that reality that this process can occur. Well, in one sense, the Church has always taught a form of that, but it has said that faith cannot be understood apart from hope and charity. And that has to do with two things, faith which is uh, an unseen thing, the ability to trust. Hope is the internal process of the individual Christian person, honesty, openness, persistence, enthusiasm. The ability to know that God is working God's work in you and in the communities of which you are a part. And finally, charity, putting it in your hands and participating in some way. You know, when preachers talk about this, often they uh, speak in terms that are far too heroic and exhort you to engage in processes in in good works that may just appear to be uh, undoable. And what is really being said in this way, in terms of the spiritual life, are the processes of finding how to do this in the ordinary and the commonplace, and in the small things, the quotidian things that you and I face on a daily basis. You know, how to do that. Clint Fowler, the priest I began my ministry with in Tucson, Arizona, said, you know, we Christians are inchers that's how we make progress, not always by great uh, strides. Does that not mean that there ought to be times when we exercise some heroic effort to create a society where it is easier to be for people to be good? The answer to that is no, and you and I always ought to be ready and prepared to do that. But for most of us on a daily basis, as anxious, distracted, busy people, are going to find that we make spiritual progress in the ordinary and the commonplace. And so faith, hope, and charity has something to do with locating it there as a start. And that's what the author of James uh, means by this. In the gospel for today, there are two healing stories. And I should introduce this by saying to you that the healing stories in the Gospels, Jesus healing people, are some if not the most widely attested facts in the New Testament. That Jesus was a healer is undisputed. But the issue that many people forget is that the healings themselves often are almost incidental to the point that is being made both by the writer of the Gospel and by the Savior Himself when He did it. That doesn't mean that you and I ought not to trust and cannot trust in the power of God to heal through the Savior, but it does mean that there is a wider issue being placed in front of us whenever we read a healing story. So in each of these, there are important things to say. Jesus is trying to get away from the crowds. He's being harried because of the healing. People want him to to heal him. They wanted him to perform these miracles. He's in a house. He's trying to get away. And a woman finds him who has a daughter that is possessed by a demon. And the interesting twist to this story is that she is not a Jew. She is not a member of the covenant, the people of God, in their reckoning. She is a Gentile. She's a Syrophoenician woman. And Jesus uh, does not become himself in this story. He is he's, uh, testy. And he says, I always think about Matthew's version of this. This story appears in in, uh, Matthew. Uh, You know, I have come to save the lost people of Israel, you know, not Gentile dogs. Not to cast bread to the dogs. And this woman says, well, you know, even the dogs eat the crumbs from the children's table. She persists. And so Jesus is changed in this regard and he compliments her for her persistence and he said you go back home and your daughter will be fine she will be healed and she is. Now in the situation of Mark who is struggling with the issue of the inclusion of the Gentiles in Christianity now with the role of the Gentile community in Christianity, and the fact that in Judaism, this woman was not clean, Jesus heals her from afar. He telegraphs the healing. He doesn't go there. So the readers are going to be a little relieved, at least the Jewish readers. But they're going to start to think about the fact that this mission may not be just for Jews, it may be also for the Gentiles. And maybe just Jesus himself goes through some kind of a personal transformation in terms of the understanding of his mission. And what we will see as the Gospels progress is a movement on Jesus' part in his preaching and teaching from focusing on this kind of uh, exclusivity to a more inclusive understanding of the great tradition that he is part of. So he will speak in his preaching and teaching about how in the sacred literature of his own people, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Amos, Amos, Hosea, the great prophets, who have announced through their message that God has always said all people are now to come into my saving embrace. And while it may be demonstrable historically that the relationship that I have with the people of the covenant is present, it is vests those people not with special privileges, but with unique responsibilities. And it is by virtue of that that we now have a mission to be clear with people about everybody comes in, that the church errs on the side of inclusion, that we believe it is important for us to welcome all. The second healing story is a story that is unique to Mark's Gospel. There are two healing stories in Mark's Gospel that appear in none of the other Gospels. This is one of them. And many biblical scholars speculate that the reason why they're not used elsewhere is because this is the earliest Gospel and these two healing stories involve a manipulation. Jesus takes this deaf-mute aside, sticks his fingers in his ears, spits on his tongue, and then says, Ephatha, be opened. I've seen television preachers do this, a manipulation. By the time of the writing of the other Gospels the writers wanted to reproduce the healing stories where Jesus heals by word alone It seems, you know, just a little bit more, I don't know. Sort of like the Post magazine cartoon many, many years ago, Saturday Evening Post of the woman taking her little boy into the grocery store.